This is the Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. I'm your host, Paul Parisi. And I'm Jacob Young. On the Edge of Innovation, we talk about the intersection between technology and business, what's going on in technology, and what's possible for business. It was no big deal. I sort of, I had played golf in college and wound up being captain of Brooklyn College golf team. Compared to my predecessors, I wasn't very good. I had a great friend who, as a, when he was a senior, his name was Dom Ferrone, and he wound up winning the Met Intercollegiate one year in a huge upset over two scholarship golfers from Princeton and Pace University. And, and I still have the New York Times article. And I talked to Donnie once in a while. He knew he wasn't good enough to make it on the tour, but he fulfilled his dream by becoming a head teaching professional at Callaway Gardens in Georgia. So I'm photographing away. And of course, it was all film then. And I had a halfway decent collection of slides. And to get my dream rolling, I decided I would try to sell a few bird pictures here, here and there. The dream was just that I could be a professional nature photographer specializing in birds. But it in my in my own head, you know, I didn't share it with anybody then. It was sort of a secret dream, you know, again with no planning. Just pretty much everything I've done in my life is just by by hook or by crook seat of the pants. We'll take one step at a time and see what happens. So by the late 80s, my marriage had ended, and I remarried my best friend who I'd known for 13 or 14 years, Elaine Belsky. And we were living, we had three different apartments in Howard Beach section of Queens, which conveniently was by Jamaica Bay Refuge. Well, it was convenient because Elaine's husband, Marvin, and her son lived in Canarsie, and our school, our school was in Bushwick. So it was a neat little triangle. So that worked well. Then I guess I thought if I'm going to be a professional, I might as well try to sell a few pictures. So I started sending pictures into Birdwatcher's Digest and Birders World. Very rarely I would sell a photograph for 50 bucks or 75 bucks. And then it dawned on me, hey, if I'm killing myself to sell one picture to be used with someone else's article, how about if I write the article, get paid for the article, and sell five or six pictures with the article? That seemed like a much better idea. The funny part is lots of people tell you if you want to get started as a writer or a photographic illustrator, you know, illustrating your stories with your pictures, the best way to do it is to write a cover letter and make it interesting and include a few pictures. And then all the editors will come running back to you telling you how much they want you to do this or that article for them. So I tried that and I must have sent out a dozen cover letters with story ideas to different editors. And I didn't even get a rejection letter. I got nothing. So I said, this isn't working very well. I don't think these people are accurate. And I forget if I read it somewhere, but it's, it turned out I was much more successful in writing an article, getting it proofread by a friend or two, and sending it along with a tight submission of maybe 20 photographs for the editor to choose from. So my first victim or target was a lady named Mary Beacom Bowers at Birdwatcher's Digest. Birdwatcher's Digest published six times a year, and 
every issue had 20 articles or so. So I figured that would be good. So I sent a package to Mary and she sent me back a note with a promise to publish. So a month went by and I got my Birdwatcher's Digest and I opened it up and I looked on the table of contents for the name Arthur Morris, nothing. Then two months later, nothing. A year later, nothing. Two years later, nothing. So I have this promise to publish that's not getting published. So I've always been a very determined person. So most people by this point, I think, would have called the editor and reminded them and said, give me a break in life or maybe complained a little bit. But I came up with an alternate plan. I sent her a second article. And a few months after that, I went down to Cape May for some birding festival, Cape May, New Jersey. And I had the pleasure of meeting Mary Bowers for the first time. And by that time, she had published the second article. And then in the next issue, published the first article. And they went on in a period of six years or so where I had about 25 articles published. You know, that sort of got me in on the ground floor at a time when you could sell photographs. When I met Mary, she was this just southern, gentle southern woman with a beautiful southern accent. And she said, Artie, I do declare you sent me that first article and I held it for two years and I never published it. She said, it just impressed me, your determination, that instead of calling me and complaining, you sent me a second article. And boy, I really admire determination in a person. Her health is very failing, and I don't know if she's alive to this minute. The publisher, who's now the editor of Birdwatcher Digest, promised to get in touch when Mary passed. But I do. When I have a thorny grammatical problem, to this day, I will email Mary because she knew language better than anyone that I've ever come across. And she was a very sweet and loving woman, Mary Beacon Bowers. And she was like the golf teacher that inspires you by just praising you. You know, no no real concrete suggestions. Just, oh, Artie, that was so beautifully written. I didn't even have to raise my pen. And then the second thing that happened was there was a little nicer, and by nicer I meant finer paper and nicer photographic reproductions. And that was Birder's World, and I worked with two editors there. One was named Julie Riddle and Mary Catherine Parks. And one of them, I sent an article about photographing birds from blinds called No Reason to Hide, because in Europe a hide is like a little blind, but I never used a blind. I just crawled in the mud and got close to the bird. Then I sent her the article, and I memory precludes me from knowing if it was Mary Catherine Parks or Julie Riddle. In any case, one of them said, Artie, you know that part that you wrote about you were crawling through the mud and the no seams are biting the back of your hand and 10 feet away, a leaf sandpiper slept peacefully? She said, that's a little first-person anecdote. If you would add some more of those to the article, we'll publish it. So I did, and that became a sort of the hallmark of my storytelling, interspersing, you know, what I was feeling and doing and thinking and seeing with, you know, some solid information. So between Mary Catherine Parks and Julie and Mary Bowers, they inspired me to write more. And, you know, that's become instrumental in my success in the failing photography market as far as being able to sell images is my ability to write and write good how-to. And that connects with my blog, which is the lifeblood of my business today. Oh, absolutely. If the writing hadn't kicked in, I'd be a greeter in Walmart or serving hamburgers at Burger King. Oh, I'm surely both.
Today, I think of myself as a photojournalist. You know, there's no way I could survive as a photographer. Not for one day, one hour, one minute. And we'll get into that in a little bit as far as the declining market for photographs. Well, I liked to draw when I was a kid. And in elementary school, for the first five years, six years, kindergarten through fifth grade, I was a star student. They used to have SOs, so I would get outstanding in every single thing. You know, I was perfectly well-behaved. I was a good kid. And then in sixth grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. McMenamin. I don't know if she's, I doubt that she's still alive. And the first week of school, my mother was called up to the principal's office by Mrs. McMenamin about four times. I was the same kid. I didn't do anything different than I had ever done. One day, we had a new girl in class after about the first month. The girl's name was Sarah Lee Miller. Don't ask me how I remember that after 65 years. But Sarah Lee Miller came into class in sixth grade, and we used to put our chairs up on the desk before we went home. And Sarah Lee knocked one chair over, and about 25 chairs fell on the ground, like a domino effect. And I remember Mrs. McMenamin shouting out, okay, Morris, 25 demerits. I hadn't done anything that nobody, anyone in the class hadn't done. We learned later that she was an anti-Semite, and to punish me, because I had the grades to be put ahead of grade. I, there was a program in junior high where you did seventh grade and then ninth grade. They called it SP, special progress. I more than had the grades for that. But to punish me, she put me in special art, which I didn't do very much with that. So I wasn't really artistic. I liked to draw, but I wasn't very good at it. So it actually turned out to be nice. I had one more year in junior high than the smart kids, went on to Brooklyn Tech and didn't do anything particularly artistic. We'll skip ahead to that first nature photography class. I was so proud. I had one picture of a greater yellow legs that I took at Sandy Hook. And by just by pure luck, I managed to get the right exposure. And we did a critiquing session. Milton Heiberg projected the slide and everyone, ooh. And Milton said, well, it's very nice, but why did you put the bird in the middle? And I said, well, where are you supposed to put the bird? I didn't know any better that we want to move the bird back in the frame and give it give it room to see. So I guess you could say that, you know, everything compositionally and artistically was learned. I think that there were, must have been some innate stuff lurking in my brain with an artistic side, but that definitely was mostly learned and how to be nurtured and developed. Does your organization need help with your IT? Savior Labs is a Boston IT firm that cares for your business and team. We solve problems so you can focus on what you do best. Talk to us today about your biggest technology problems. Just follow the link in the show notes and enter the code EDGE for more information. Yes. That is all correct. And I just had a thought. We keep talking about the art stuff and the transitioning from being a school teacher to thinking there was a chance I might be able to make some money as a photographer or as it turned out to be a photojournalist. So probably sometime about 1989, 1990, I was living with Elaine and we were recently married. And I was telling her that I might want to be a professional photographer one day, but I needed a name for my business. 
At the time, there was a famous photographer named Tom Mangelson. He's still well-known. And I think his business name was Reflections of Nature. And everybody who was getting into photography took a play on his name. Images of nature, nature's reflections, reflections of nature. I said, Elaine, what can we do? I, I need a good business name, and I don't want it to be reflections of anything. So we sort of brainstormed for a minute, and she said, well, you like birds, and your work is artistic, and your name is Arthur, and short for that is Artie or Art. And then she blurted out, birds is art. And I remember at the moment I said, oh, babe, that's amazing. That's the greatest thing I ever heard, birds is art. So I would go on to lose her to breast cancer in 1994, and... And it's just very comforting to know that even today in the age of digital, every time I press the shutter button, Birds as Art is embedded in the, the metadata. So Elaine lives on. You know, she, she was always my best friend and my biggest supporter. And, you know, I was sad for a long time after she died. Then I got into this stuff called The Work, The Work of Byron Katie, and found a good measure of peace. And now I can look back on Elaine Belsky just with nothing but smiles at how lucky I was to be with her for nine years. Oh, I always have said that if I never sold one photograph, if I never sold one article, if I never led one photographic tour teaching other people, that I'd be spending just as much time photographing birds. It's not a question. The fact that I was able to make a living and what turned out to be an amazingly lucrative living, doing what I love to do more than anything in the world, that's the miracle of my life. Everyone should be so blessed. I wrote a lot, and I had sent some pictures to Vireo, and the guy who was director then, name was J. Pete Myers, and I said, I'm a fledgling bird photographer. And he wrote back and he said, you're far more than a fledgling bird photographer. But in fact, that's what I was. So Vireo started selling a few pictures. And at the time, in the late 90s and the very early part of the aughts, there was some money to be made selling nature photography as stock by doing it the hard way, not through a stock agent, although Vireo was a quasi-stock agency, Visual Resources for Ornithology, part of the Academy of Natural Science in Philadelphia. And at the height of it, maybe they were selling four or $5,000 twice a year. So I get some decent checks. And we were sending stuff over the transom. I remember in the early years, just going to the bookstores, looking at the books and magazine, finding the name of the publisher, writing a cover letter, sending samples, and selling a few pictures. And that grew. Elaine was gone in 94. By 2001, I hired my daughter Jennifer to help me run the business in 1998. And probably the height of the sales of images to be used in books and on calendars was probably about 2001 because Jennifer's my quasi accountant. And I said, hey, Jen, see how much money we made selling photographs in 2001. So she went back through the spreadsheets and she came up with a figure of about 220000 U.S. dollars. Pretty damn good for selling the rights to photographs to be used in books and magazines. And I don't remember, maybe even on a website or two back then. 
So in 2011, 10 years, I said to Jen, hey, Jen, you remember when you used to do that thing with where we made the money from? I said, just go back and check the sales of pictures, just pictures that we sold to publishers for books and magazines and website usage. And pretty stunningly, I mean, I knew things were bad, but I didn't realize how bad we had sold in from 2001 when we sold $220,000 worth of images to 2011. That number had dropped to just under 20,000 for the year. Then a month ago, I said to Jen, hey, Jen, go back and see how much we made from selling pictures in 2007, in 2016, $2,004, down another 90%. So re really, in essence, down about 99%. Uh, I'm sure there's some photographers around, commercial, who are still surviving by selling photographs. In nature photography, the market has gotten a thousand times tighter. Sometime after 9-11, traditional publishing of hard copy books and calendars has just gone totally downhill. And then other factors are involved in that it's so much easier to become a good digital photographer than it was to become a good photographer with film so that there are hundreds of excellent photographers. And the way it's worked out is many of them are more than happy to give away their photographs for a credit line. So the market is virtually destroyed. A perfect example of that is a little publishing project called iBird. There used to be a guy named Peter Thayer, and he used to make bird recording CDs. And he bought all the pictures through Vireo. And not only did he pay a fair price, 60 or $70 for each photograph, but when he would sell 10,000 CDs as per the contract, you would get paid a second time. So those were some nice checks. So then along came this guy with iBird, and he emailed every bird photography he could find on the planet, and he came up with the following picture. You let me use your pictures for free on this new CD I'm doing for bird recordings called iBird, and I will use your picture and I will give you a credit line and people will be soon lining up to buy your pictures from you because you'll have two or three hundred pictures on my iBird CD. So many of the best photographers bought that deal. I did not. I said, that's ridiculous. Then the credit line for each photographer, you need a 20 power magnifier to read it and no one has ever sold a picture. But the end result was Peter Thayer pretty much went out of business. And the iBird guy went on, I would think, to be a multimillionaire because he expanded to just dozens and dozens of different CDs. And instead of, you know, Peter Thayer was selling a CD for 90 bucks and paying people fairly. This guy didn't have to pay anybody fairly. He got the rights to the recordings rather cheaply, and he sells his thing for 12 bucks. And then with the this explosion of bird watching and birding, he's done quite well for himself. Oh, birding's growing every day. For me, for birds is art, to leave teaching when I did, just as this huge groundswell of people being aware of nature, wanting to get out there with a pair of binoculars. I mean, the grandfather of the whole thing was Roger Torrey Peterson with his series of, you know, the Eastern Field Guide to Birds. And then that's grown into this huge collection of field guides in, done in the Peterson style. And birding continues to grow as the baby boomers get into retirement with disposable income. There are just more and more bird watchers, more and more bird, birding events. Heck, when I, when I first started, there was the fall roundup at Cape May by Cape May Bird Observatory. There was one birding festival. Now, if you go online and you would do a search 
Now, if you get online and do a search for birding festivals, you can probably find two or three or four a week for 52 weeks a year. You know, the next big one was the Festival of the Cranes in Bosque del Apache in New Mexico. After that, things grew like wildfire, in part due to my friend Paul Curlinger at Cape May Bird Observatory. I mentioned they had the fall roundup. Well, Paul decided one year to do a study on how much money the birders spent when they came to Cape May to come to the festival, and then expanded that to a year and extrapolated, and found out that when people travel to visit a birding festival or to go birding in general, that there's this huge multiplier effect. You know, they buy their plane tickets, they got their binoculars, they have their hotel reservations, they have their rental car, they eat at the local restaurants, they stay a week. And I forget the fantastic figure that he came up with. But once folks saw this, and this became common knowledge, people at bird-rich areas all around the country said, hey, let's have a festival. And there are plenty of them today. And they're generating surely tens of millions of dollars of income for individual communities each year around the country and around the world even. Cheers, Paul. You have a great one. The Edge of Innovation is brought to you in partnership with Savior Labs. Savior Labs exists to help businesses mature and strategize for the future. Learn more about Savior Labs at SaviorLabs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Edge of Innovation, Hacking the Future of Business. For the show notes and more information about Paul, please visit paulparisi.com. The Edge of Innovation is produced by Jacob Young in conjunction with copious amounts of coffee. Music on today's episode was from bensound.com. Paul can be found on Twitter at pdparisi and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash pd parisi this episode like all our episodes is transcribed and available at paulparisi.com thanks for listening and we'll see you next week